my message, I guess, would be it's never too early to start having a voice about the things that you care about. We spend a lot of time as people, especially when we're young, focusing on what we want to do, right? Uh, and what we do can change so many times during the course of one's lifetime. What we don't spend as much time on is who do we want to be? And I think that's really important. And I've started to have that conversation with my daughter, you know, as, as confused as she was the first time we had it. Uh, she's like, what do you mean? Well, who do I want to be? I'm like, well, what sort of person do you want to be? You know, what do you want people to say about you? You know, do they, do you want people to say that you're kind? Do you want people to say that you're generous? Do you want people to say that you're grumpy? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's important to have these conversations because we're not taught to have them. We're taught to focus on what, not how. And I think the how is so much more important nowadays. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple. Humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Our next guest is the head of legal in Australia and the Pacific Islands for a large multinational. As a female working in a profession known for having the old boys club mentality, she has become a voice for gender equality in the legal field. A mother of two children, she also advocates for mental health and employee flexibility. She openly shares her own struggles with pregnancy loss and the challenges associated for women in the workplace. I met her somewhere randomly on LinkedIn but her authenticity and vulnerability really struck a chord. She is our first international guest, but her lived experiences are just as valid. Joining us from Down Under, my next guest is Niti Nataraja. Welcome to the show, Niti. How's it going today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And, you know, I want to dive right in because, like I was saying before, uh, we have 45 to 60 minutes and I really want to unpack some of your experiences because it is so vast. Um, now, I, as I said, you're our first international guest. And from friends of mine who visited Australia, I've heard that they felt some sort of racism by the color of their skin. What was it like for you growing up brown in Australia? Yeah, so I um, I was born in the UK and then I moved to Australia when I was about six. Uh, for me personally, I never really experienced it. And actually, I remember I used to get into these arguments with my dad because he would tell me, this country is racist, right? And they, what part of the reason they'd moved from the UK was because they faced that there as well. And they just never really felt 100% comfortable. So they were looking for a better life. And that was part of the reason why they moved to Australia. But even so, he used to tell me, no, this country does have a lot of underlying racism in it. And I used to say to him, Dad, what are you on about? That's not true. You know, it's 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 so fair and multicultural and it's, you know, it's it's good. It's good here. And really, you know, I was I was so naive. I didn't see it at all. And the thing that changed my mind was I went with my dad to a he had a property dispute. We had some renovations. He had a dispute with the builder. So we went to this tribunal and um, to have, you know, have this matter heard. And I didn't take the oath. I went with him. I was a law student at the time. So I was like, I'll come for, you know, moral sort of, you know, you know, just support more than anything else. And I sat there as this um, tribunal president or judge spoke to my dad and he was so condescending, like speaking really slowly like this and continually asking my dad if he understood what he was saying. And my dad had been out of um, India for, I mean, things since the 1960s, 1970s. So a long time by this stage, and we're talking about like 2000, right? Or something, something like that. So I got so infuriated. I was like, you need, I put my hand up and I was like, you need to, you know, give me that, you know, affirmation thing. I want to, I want to speak. And when I spoke, this guy's attitude was completely different. None of the same attitude, 
none of the slowing down, none of the do you understand. And I realized at that point, the difference for me and my dad was that I don't have an accent and my dad does have an accent. And so for me, you know, whilst I've not experienced it personally, I can now see it and I do see it and I hear stories from other people about the things that they faced as well, you know, and, and people my age, people who've grown up, you know, in Australia as well, have had very different lived experiences growing up to what I did. I was lucky in that way. And I, you know, in the last year have realized that that actually is part of my privilege. It, it's that I did not have to experience these things. And that as a result of not having experienced these things, I am in a position where I need to and should be giving back to others who are experiencing these issues. That's amazing. And, and it's such a tough experience to witness as a daughter to see your father sort of up there and, and you just sprung into action and sort of you notice the attitude change right away. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was incredible. I mean, I, I literally in that moment, I stopped being naive about it and was... I was just so confronted by the whole thing. I was just like, how dare you talk to him that way? His English is, is excellent. He's been in this country for a long time. He deserves your respect. And yeah, and he didn't get it from this guy at all. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the things that my friends have told me are, are slightly true at times, but I think the, the one thing is, um, you know, when getting to new scenarios and new situations, it's always about, I find the people, right? It's not, it's not so much the place. I've heard great stories of Australia that I look forward to, to visiting, but, you know, th there are those challenges. And I mean, another sort of, I would call it maybe a stereotype is, is the old boys club when it comes to, to the legal profession. And uh, it's, it's kind of developed that reputation. Is that something that you have found uh, to be true? And is there any stories you could maybe share with our audience that kind of illustrates what that's like? Yeah, look, I think it's definitely true. I think it's one of the biggest problems in the legal profession today. You know, we have, even when I graduated from law school, we had more female graduates for the first time um, than male graduates. And it was something that our dean at the university spoke about really proudly at the time to say things are changing. You know, here's evidence that things are changing. But the problem is that you have these uh, graduates, female graduates go through law school. They then get into the legal profession and for whatever reason, particularly in law firms, it's a little bit different different in the corporate um, sector and in-house, but particularly in law firms, women then leave, right? And so what you find is at the most senior levels of a lot of these organizations, you have a lot of men and not just men, but white men as well, right? You know, there's also a real issue of racial, lack of racial and cultural diversity in some of these organizations as well. And things are changing, but it's changing really slowly. And I think if you look at some of the particular issues around the way some of these organizations are structured, they don't lend themselves to um, females working at these organizations. So for me, one of the things I always thought when I started at law firms was, how does a woman who decides she wants to have a family and even a man for that matter, you know, as a father, balance the two, right? There is no balance. There is, you know, there are billable hour targets, right? So, you know, the longer you're there, the better it looks, right? The less you're there, the worse it looks, even if you're doing your work efficiently, even if your work is excellent. And I've had that feedback before, right? Like someone told me I was too efficient for my own good because I wasn't billing enough, right? And it's like, well, all these issues don't really lend themselves to a balanced life. And nowadays, people want a balanced life. And as a mother, I really, you know, I, I work hard, yes, but I also spend a lot of time with my kids and I enjoy being able to spend that time with my kids. I want to see them grow up. Like I remember stories of, you know, senior women who had kids and literally there was one I remember well she used to refer to her I think three-year-old as baby right and she never ever ever used her name she 
always was with nannies, right? It was kind of this, it almost felt like there was a disconnect between her and this child. And it was sad. I was like, I don't want that, right? I, I want to have that connection with my child. I want to be able to progress in this organization, but not at the expense of my life. And I think, look, you know, that's one aspect of it. I think there are other aspects of it too. I think, you know, like many other professions, women face the same issues around, you know, uh, assertiveness versus bossiness and all of those sort of things. And when you've got imbalance at the top levels and when you've got such a hierarchical structure, it becomes very difficult for women to progress through the ranks, right? And you, you end up having to adopt a persona that is that might not be you, might not fit with you either. And so a lot of women end up leaving and end up going elsewhere, unfortunately. Wow. Now, and, and when you talk about adopting a persona, is that sort of like, because there's a very um, notorious culture for work, for entertainment for things of that nature in the legal profession is that part of the adoption for females to to have to uh, maybe look a certain way speak a certain way have you noticed that yeah i think so like i mean you you have to you're always taught that you need to be confident you need to be you need to go to these networking events and you need to sell right and so these organizations largely, and again, things are, I hope, changing, but they largely value the hard skills over what we term the soft skills, right? The the masculine energy over the feminine energy. And so I think a lot of the things that really are critical to creating environments that are supportive and you know facilitate engagement uh, loyalty, all of those sort of things, they're not valued as highly um, in these organizations. And I think they need to they need to look at this and really start building these skills, you know, the skills of empathy and listening and, you know, uh, listening is a big one, right? Like, I mean, they need to listen to what what is happening at these levels of the organization? Why are people leaving? Particularly, you know, women, perhaps those that might be of color, etc. Why are these people leaving these organizations? Uh, and, and then see what they can do about that to change that and turn that around. No, that makes complete sense. It's funny because we're in, we're in Toronto, Canada. And one of the things that I've noticed is like a lot of the law firms here have created a diversity and inclusion statements and um you know they're great in my opinion marketing and pr pieces that have come out but from what i've heard some of these statements don't line up with the inner culture that is that is the company and um is that something that you've heard through maybe some of your colleagues in in australia as well i think so and i think look this is a problem in not just law firms but in a lot of corporates as well you know this I guess, lip service to diversity, and I'll, I'll extend it even further to cover mental health as well, right? Like, I think there's a lot of lip service at the moment to these two issues. But putting out a statement and saying that you believe in diversity and inclusion is kind of something that everyone is doing right now, right? It doesn't set you apart anymore. So to really be seen to be different, to really embrace, you know, these diverse communities, organizations need to put in the hard work. And the hard work goes beyond talking. It's really actually doing something, listening, you know, and seeing what change needs to be made to policies, to systems, to processes, to the way that you work to facilitate these people being able to join these organizations and not just join them, but to thrive within them. Definitely. And you know, one of the things that I talk about is, is like from a professional standpoint is the fact that when you are um, engaging in lip service, you really can open yourself up to liability and possible future litigation. And, you know, these are things that organizations really need to look at from a legal perspective as to whether perception matches reality. So, um, 
it's it's definitely an interesting time that we're living in uh, for all of us, but especially in the legal profession where you are considered to have people's best interest at heart. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point, actually, because when you are, for example, representing, you know, communities that are diverse and look different to you, how can you do that if you're in an organization that doesn't itself live by the values you espouse, you know? It has to go deeper. The work has to be far deeper than what it is today. And look, I think it's it's a good thing that organizations are starting to really pay more attention to it. But we're just starting. I don't think the work has really truly begun yet for a lot of organizations out there. I couldn't agree more. Let's switch gears. I mean, we're talking a little bit of workshop here, but I really want to get down to something that I know that you're super passionate about, and that's that's mental health. Um, you know, you, you speak very openly about the loss of a, a child and um, sort of how that has affected you in the workplace and women who are dealing with this in the workplace. And I know that there's been legislation that's been enacted um, closer towards where you are with respect to this. I think it was New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. which was very powerful. Um, can you share with me sort of your lived experiences around that and how it affected you and what you've heard from other women? Because I know that you're really engaged in conversation with people around this topic. Yeah, 100%. So you're right. This is an area I'm very passionate about. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is I I grew up as a non-sharer. Like I never shared anything about, you know, mental health. It just wasn't part of my family's DNA to talk about that stuff as loving and as caring and beautiful as an environment as I grew up in, right? You just didn't talk about these things. And so when I, so I had a one child first, my daughter, who's now seven and easy pregnancy, right? No issues whatsoever. I had some issues post pregnancy. um, And so it took me some time to work up the courage to try again but um but my pregnancy itself was really straightforward so when we got pregnant the second time we were like yay and so in my head i'd started imagining what this child was going to be like my daughter was three at the time we told her that we were pregnant so she started talking to my belly and kissing it and um we told my parents my husband's parents close friends And then we went to our eight-week scan and I remember we were sitting there, we were so excited and um, I could, I was watching my OB as as I was laughing with my husband and in a second I could see his eyes, just the the smile in his eyes disappeared and um, I knew in that moment something wasn't quite right and that's when he told me that he couldn't hear a heartbeat anymore and it was, you know, my world fell apart at that moment. And it's 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 funny because you don't realize until you've gone through one and you start talking to people that you know just how many people go through this and how many people have similar stories. And, you know, and I had two miscarriages, so I had another one after that as well. And I literally, because of the cone of silence that surrounds these issues, I didn't tell work much. I literally just told them enough to be able to get out of a a trip that I was supposed to go on because I was like, I can't deal with this and be out, out of my own home at the same time. So I told my boss for that reason. But other than that, I really didn't share much more with him and I didn't let on just how much it was affecting me. And so I just kind of plowed through work as if, nothing had happened and when it happened to me the following year as well I very much did the same thing and in fact it probably to a greater degree because I'd just been promoted I had a team to build a new team to manage etc and it was only a few months later uh, that when someone asked me if I was okay that I kind of stood there in shock because I was like no one's asked me that and actually, this is quite a confronting question, as easy as it seems. And it was ironic because it was in the context of us discussing mental health awareness in the organization, because I'd been doing a lot of that work over the past, over that very period of time that I was experiencing all of this myself, right? Ironic. 
Um, and so when she asked me that question and I paused for a bit, I actually realized I so wasn't okay. And, you know, it was like this massive floodgates after that. And it made me realize that actually painting all of this up inside of me had done more harm than good because I'd literally been a zombie at work. I'd been trying to go through the motions, but really I wasn't fully there. And I probably wasn't working to the same extent I would have been ordinarily either, right? Because your concentration is affected. You know, you're thinking of other things, right? Your mind is somewhere else. And so I realized with that, that, you know, we need to talk about these issues more. Um, there's too much silence associated with that early period of pregnancy because of, you know, the risk of miscarriage and because people don't want to, I guess, go through the heartache of untelling people what they've told them, right? Um, once you voice something, you make it real. But they, I guess, the you know, the flip to that is that if you don't voice it, it's only real within you. <laughs> And you hold on to all that pain. And even in a relationship, you and your partner may be dealing with things very differently, right? You both have pain, but it's just different. I mean, I definitely could not see my husband's pain at the time. It took me a while to get out of my bubble of pain to be able to see that he might have been experiencing his own pain as well. But, you know, these are all things we need to discuss more because the attitude towards pregnancy loss at the moment is it's something you just get over. You know, take a couple of days of sick leave and you'll be right and you'll be back at work and be fine, right? Because it just wasn't meant to be. And it was only eight weeks, right? These are the sorts of things that you tell yourself and that society tells you. Whereas the lasting trauma of these events is, is very real because it's not just <clears throat> eight weeks. You have imagined a life for this child, right? You have seen them, you know, be born. Like you've imagined that in your head. You've imagined if you've, if you've already got a child, you've imagined the two children playing together. You know, you've got all this in your head. So it's all these dreams that you're mourning as much as the loss of the child itself. So, yeah, so for me, it's important that we start talking about these issues. And I think the move that the New Zealand government has made to introduce um, specific leave uh, for early pregnancy loss. And now Australia's done the same too recently. It should come through this year. Uh, is, is excellent because although two days of leave isn't going to help you recover from it or get over it, what it does is it facilitates a conversation. It allows people to actually say, this happened to me and I need to deal with it rather than I'm going to deal with it in silence and just pretend nothing's happened. I'll stay away from work maybe for a couple of days and then I'll be right again and no one will know any better or any different, right? We mourn the death of loved ones. Why not the death of, you know, uh, or the loss of a pregnancy? And, and in many respects, I mean, I've had my own personal challenges with fertility, as you know, and uh, it, it's very much a loss. Right. And I think that even hearing your story being retold, because I'd never heard it like that, it also struck a chord for me. And I wonder, how do you speak about it so eloquently now when I know how much pain is attached to this very subject? It's taken time, right? It's taken time to heal from it. So I knew when I had my second miscarriage and particularly I think after the floodgates had opened when I'd spoken to that one person that asked me if I was okay, that in the light of everything we were doing in the organization around mental health, this was an important topic that needed to be discussed at some point or another. So I had started in my head rehearsing what I would say, right? And so I would literally be in the shower and talking out loud to myself. I remember a couple of times my daughter came in and she's like, who are you talking to? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm just talking to myself. Um, but I literally had this speech, this story prepared, right? Because it's my story, right? It's, it's, I know it well, but I had almost framed it all in my head. And so 
there were numerous times I thought this is the day that I'm going to do it. Like, you know, we had mental health speakers coming in and I was like, I'm introducing this person. I can share my story now. Right. Put it on the table. Um, or we were doing uh, storytelling workshops and things like that. I was like, here's the perfect opportunity for me to put this on the table. And every time it came to that moment, I was like, I can't do it. I can't talk about it because it would make me emotional and it would make me nervous to share something so openly that was so private or felt so private. And it was only last year um, when I'd been engaging a little bit on LinkedIn that there was a day where I just sat down and went, I should just put my story on LinkedIn. Why don't I just write it that I'm not speaking to anyone. I'm just writing it. It's already in my head. Just write it. So I sat there. It took me no time at all to write it because I already had it in my head. And when I'd written it, I sat there and I was like, am I going to post it? And the same feelings I'd had around speaking about it came up again. I was like, this is a lot to put out into the world. You know, this is all my colleagues, my ex-colleagues, my family, my friends, you know, friends of friends, people, yeah, just all these people that might read this, do I really want to put this out there? And I got up and walked away from the laptop numerous times, went and had a cup of tea because I wasn't ready to do it. And then eventually I just went, what are you doing? Just do it. You'll feel better once you do it. You've wanted to do this for ages. You haven't had the, the right occasion present itself. Just do it. And so I pressed enter. And then I looked at my laptop and I went, no, take it back. <laughs> I literally wanted to take it back the minute I pressed enter. But I was like, no, and I sort of almost was like restraining myself from deleting it. Um, and I did. And I was so nervous. And those two days I received after that post, I received so many messages and so many uh, people shared their own personal stories with me. And it was emotional, like it was really hard to read these stories, right? I was an emotional wreck for a few days. But hearing these stories really made me realize this is why I thought I needed to do it. And if it's nothing else than allowing someone else to voice their own story and to share it with someone then that in itself is huge, right? And the amazing thing was a lot of the people that wrote to me, particularly in private messages, were men, you know, who had partners that had suffered these miscarriages and they had felt helpless in that time, in the, at that point in time, because they didn't know how to support their partner and they didn't know how to deal with their own grief at the same time. So... Look, it's, you know, that was the start of it. And ever since then, it's slowly, you know, it's just building up my courage to share more and more and more. And the more times I share, the easier it becomes. You know, I've, I've said this before on LinkedIn, but, you know, the thing that you find really scary to begin with, so if you, you know, you do it a few times, you do it, you know, five, ten times, it's no longer scary. Like to me, it no longer feels brave to share my story. It just is my story, right? And there's a greater purpose here, which is facilitating this conversation or normalizing the conversation as I like to call it and allowing other people to either have this, have their own voice, right? Or to at least feel that they're seen and heard, even if they're not comfortable sharing their own story. You're breaking stigmas. And and this is why I loved LinkedIn because it's a community of professionals sharing authentic stories. Um, and, and and like I said, your, your authenticity and vulnerability just shine through. I'm going to ask you a question. And because um, I, I really want to, to understand the impact of, of compassion and empathy. And take me back to the boardroom when your colleague asked you, are you okay? What was that flood of emotion? What did you feel inside? And what were you thinking as she asked you this question? A simple question. Yeah, it, 
it was, I guess the first thing for me was an almost automatic reflex to go, yes, I'm okay, right? And so that was the first thing that came into my head was, yeah, I'm okay. But then I, I sort of felt myself stop mentally and just go, am I? You know, and this, I guess this mask that I'd put on, because I knew it was a mask, because I'd been, you know, going to the bathroom to cry silent tears and getting home and all the emotion and the, I guess, the um, the struggle of putting on this mask for the whole day was, it, it then made me implode at home, right? And unfortunately, my family bore the brunt of that when I got home because I was just a mess in the evenings. And so I knew I was wearing this mask, but the longer you wear it, the more it feels like your own face, right? And so in that moment, I was like, but am I okay? Um, and that made me realize, and this all happened in the space of not very long, right? You know what I mean? This is, I'm talking a pause of maybe five seconds, 10 seconds. Right. But, you know, then I'm like, well, no. I'm really not okay. I'm so not okay. And I haven't been okay for a year, longer than a year since my first miscarriage. And, and the first thing that came out of my mouth was no, <laughs> I'm not okay. You know, and she just sat in silence. Um, and, and this is a, a woman who is an external consultant. So she was helping us with mental health awareness. So she's obviously well-versed in this space as well, right? And so she could obviously see something in me that wasn't quite how I normally presented. And so recognize that something was perhaps a little off. And then that silence that she allowed us to sit in was the most powerful thing because that silence meant that she wasn't filling the space with her own words, which meant that I could then, you know, sidetrack to something else and sort of move away from this difficult and uncomfortable space. But instead she just sat there in silence and I went, you know, here's what's going on. And that's when I shared everything that was going on. And it wasn't just even my miscarriages, you know, all of a sudden this became a therapy session about all this stuff that I had going on and, because, you know, we're complex beings, you know, we might have one event that happens to us that triggers an emotion, but there might be five other things going on in our life that are compounding that, right? So all of this stuff spilt forth and she really just allowed me to speak, you know, and this is what I say to people quite often in these conversations. We often as humans, like to feel that we need to fix things, that we need to solve things for people, that we need to somehow rush in and cocoon them, you know, wrap them up in some sort of safety blanket. We don't need to do that. Quite often in these conversations, the most powerful thing that we can do for another person is to sit there in silence. And perhaps if we're with them to, you know, allow some physical touch, right? You know, to put an arm around their shoulder, to put an arm on their, you know, a hand on their arm, you know, move your chair closer to them. Things that allow that person to feel that they're supported, right? But that they're not being pushed to give a, a version of the story that the other person wants to hear, right? It's their story, they tell it how they want to tell it. And that's what was incredibly powerful in that moment for me is that this woman allowed me to just share where I was. It shouldn't stop me from sharing any of what I was sharing. It was just, okay, let's get it out. And I can't tell you how much lighter I felt after that conversation. You know, it didn't heal, you know, the losses and the losses I will never heal from, right? You know, I have another son now as well. I had a rainbow baby after these two miscarriages, but even that has not healed these losses. It's just helped as time has gone by to make them less painful. But she just allowed me to sit and to share and to talk. And I think in that moment, more than anything else, that's all I needed. I needed to be heard. 
I think that's beautiful. And I think it's uh, great uh, advice in terms of allowing people to just understand that you are so much more than your work because you as an individual are responsible for a lot in your res- role and responsibilities at work on top of everything else that you have going on in life outside of that, right? And um, that's why you're championing these amazing causes within your space. And I think it's, it's very admirable. Um, you know, I started this company discourse because I knew that my daughter would end up facing things that I would never face in the workplace. I mean, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm brown. You know, she's a little girl. I don't know what her sexual orientation will be at the time, but she is a brown female. And it is difficult in certain spaces um, to feel that respect. How do you think we can move closer to gender equality in the workplace? Uh, it's a big question. It is there's a very a, big question. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done in this space. Look, I think, you know, there are a lot of organizations and a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of good in this area. And I think the first thing is speaking up, right? I think that's number one. We we need to have a voice in this conversation. We need to share our personal stories. We need to talk about the things that are wrong. But that's only step one, right? That's step one is talking up. Um, I think secondly, there are a lot of systemic issues at play here. I mean, the world of work as we know it has been designed around this white man that has his family that travel around the country with him, you know, or around the world with him. And, you know, it's, it's, it's built around this concept that there's one individual in the family that works, right? For most women, that's not the reality, right? For most women, you are potentially in a dual income household, right? Not always. I mean, obviously there are single mums out there that are working. There are women that, you know, are the only person working in the family. But quite often that's not the case. And quite often you have two people working in the family, right? And these, the world of work is just not designed very well around dual income families. It really isn't. So I think organizations need to look inwards to try and understand what are the systemic things in there and the structures and the processes within their organizations that are preventing women from succeeding and getting to the next level of the organization, right? And I think a lot of that involves really listening. You know, I think as I was talking about earlier, I think people need to have a voice, right, in these in these topics. And then so organizations need to go to these communities within their organizations and hear them, right? Hear their lived stories and understand what are the issues specifically that are at play here for me, right? For for this particular individual. And then working with that, they can try and unpack some of the, you know, the policies that perhaps need changing, some of the, uh, I guess, biases around mobility or progression through an organization, you know, what unconscious biases are managers coming with. For example, you know, a woman goes on maternity leave what are the automatic assumptions that are made about that woman when she then returns to the workforce? You know, Is it assumed that now that she's got a family, she might wanna take a step back from her career, right? Because that can impact that woman's ability to progress. She may not want to do that. She may want to continue going. She may be ambitious. She may be the primary breadwinner for that family. So it may be critical for her that she continues to go down that path and keeps progressing through an organization. So what does that look like? And I think one of the traps that organizations often fall into is um, training as a way to solve all of this. And training is good, but it kind of goes in one ear and out the other half the time. You know, there's that common saying that you only take away maybe like, I don't know, I think it's like three things from a training that lasts for an hour, like, you know, maybe five minutes worth. So, you know, we've got to be careful with training. You can't have training without follow up. So it's really building a whole program, a whole plan that's designed around rectifying these issues within organizations. Now, separate to that, there are also societal issues at play here. So, you know, even 
from the point that say you have a child and the child goes to childcare, what are the gender stereotypes that are at play in that environment? So within early education, how can we change things so that girls and boys are encouraged to be who they are, not what gender they are, right? Because I saw this even with my daughter, like I, you know, very much don't believe in gender stereotyping. And I grew up not really having dolls or anything when I was a kid. I had more soft toys and cars and Lego and stuff like that. So I was like, you know, she's going to have a variety of stuff. Like I don't want to pigeonhole her into any one thing either way, right? And so despite my best efforts to not have her fall into these gender stereotypes, when she was about three or four, she was like, I like pink and I want a doll and, you know, I want a dollhouse and all these sort of things. And I was like, where is this coming from? You know, and it's obvious it's come from either one childcare or it's come from other kids that she's with. And so I think as parents, we need to be mindful as well of our own biases, right? You know, when we have a boy, do we buy that child, you know, outfits with toy cars on them? You know, do we buy a girl really frilly dresses? You know, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's just knowing how our own biases are impacting the way we behave as parents as well. And the same for educators. And educators themselves are often parents as well, right? They have their own kids. So they're bringing that to their organization too. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit there that we need to unpack as well. And then that carries through the schooling journey as well. I mean, I think again, teachers along the way need to be mindful of how they're treating boys versus girls, you know. Um, are girls being given an opportunity to speak up and have their voice heard in the same way that boys are? How are teachers inclusive, particularly within co-educational, you know, spaces? How does that work? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit there with children and the education space. I think there's the organizational space. And then there's a little bit of our own, I guess, beliefs and expectations, right? You know, like I even think about things like, uh, you know, who's going to stay at home when you have a child, right, for example. And often women will take it upon themselves. And I definitely did that. And that was part of my culture as well. This is just what happened. And you know, and it's hard to overcome some of that. But I think as a society, we need to do more to encourage that to happen. So, you know, what are the policies that the government is putting in place with respect to things like um, parental leave? You know, is it equivalent for uh, males and females? Or is it like mothers, fathers? Or is it different? You know, uh, so it's it's all these sort of things that I think can help create or facilitate an environment where we can have more equality between the genders. I have to Does say, answer your question. Well, you know what? I was just you know as as you're speaking, I'm thinking if I had multinational money, I would hire you at Discourse. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. You know, here because because here's the thing. I mean, we're talking about things. Uh, almost like a life cycle, if you will, right? Because we talked a little bit about work. We went right back to education and sort of how are we helping people learn? Because I think, you know, uh, we've talked about this privately as well as parents. Uh, it's incumbent upon us to to raise children who are not going to perpetuate some of the stereotypical issues that we're finding have caused these issues that we're, we're dealing with currently in the workplace and being able to empower them from a very young age so that the next generation, like we could try to make things better, but the next generation can really change things, right? And that's why I've said to myself, I've tempered the expectation to be, can we actually make change here? Maybe not in our lifetime. We can make some change, but we won't see the mm -hmm. change we want to see. And yeah. uh, I just think it's a very honest answer to that question. So thank you so much for your for your honesty and sort of bringing a little bit of our private conversations to, to the conversation here today. Yeah. Um, you know, when we get down to things, what we really try to do is, is, is get stories that will leave people with some sort of impact that when they hear it, they're like, wow, 
Is there anything that you can share either through your mental health challenges, your, um, uh, you know, or, or not challenges, but going through the processing of emotion, if you will, and as well as being a female in that boys club? Is there any one particular story that you could leave people to say, this is my lived experience? I just want you to know. Is there anything that you can share with us? Oh, look, I think beyond what I've shared already, probably not. I mean, for me, I think it's it's a number of things. Like, I, I think I, I, I didn't, you know, I always knew these things were uh, issues growing up, but I think it took me until I started facing some of them myself. You know, for, for example, uh, you know, leaving work to go uh, be a mom and have my daughter and you know the perceptions I faced when I returned to work uh, as a new mum working flexibly uh, and things like that you know it, it I didn't realize before just how real these issues were until I was in them and it's the same with miscarriage right you know every every couple or every you know mother that's you know having a child knows that there is a risk of miscarriage in you know when you're when you fall pregnant and when you realize you're pregnant but until you are actually in it and experience it you don't you don't understand the magnitude of emotion that you can feel through it and i think it's taken me these lived experiences to really understand how critical and how vital it is to have a voice in this space and all i can say is i guess i wish i'd you know said more done more earlier right you know i think the last year in particular has really opened my eyes to the fact that life is short life is unpredictable um, and who knows when it'll be over right so what is that legacy that I want to leave behind and what is my purpose, right? You know, I love my work and I love what I do, but there's a broader purpose at play here. And, you know, my purpose is really, well, I want to make things a little bit better, even if it's only for my daughter, right? And my son equally, you know, um, I want to make things a little bit better. Uh, I want to help people in some way, shape or form and reach them in some way, shape or form. So. How can I do that? And I'm ever grateful that this last year has brought me that realization because it's changed my entire attitude towards life on the whole. But in some ways, I wish I'd had that realization earlier. So I think, you know, my message, I guess, would be it's never too early to start having a voice about the things that you care about. We spend a lot of time as people, especially when we're young, focusing on what we want to do right uh, and what we do can change so many times during the course of one's lifetime what we don't spend as much time on is who do we want to be and I think that's really important and I've started to have that conversation with my daughter you know as as confused as she was the first time we had it uh, she's like what do you mean well who do I want to be I'm like well what sort of person do you want to be you know what do you want people to say about you you know, do they? Do you want people to say that you're kind? Do you want people to say that you're generous? Do you want people to say that you're grumpy? Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's important to have these conversations because we're not taught to have them. We're taught to focus on what, not how. And I think the how is so much more important nowadays. Thank you for having the courage to, to speak up on these very uh, personal topics. And I think that, you know, that advice to others about having that courage and, and starting today really about being heard and, and using your voice to let people know how you feel, where you're at. Because at the end of the day, we are people, not just employees. And I think that's a really important exactly. message. How, you know, we ask each guest this, this question, how do you think as a society, we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? Oh, again, another big question. <laughs> Coming at me with the big questions nowadays, uh, today. But um, look, I think, I think listening. Uh, you know, I've said it a number of times today, but I think listening is number one. You know, and 
listening with an open mind, listening without intent to, you know, to speak back, you know, it's kind of, because we often have this tendency to think ahead in our heads to what we're going to say in response. But I think this, you know, this skill of listening is so critical um, and it's not one that we're great at, you know, particularly with, you know, technology and everything else, we get so distracted. Are we ever really listening to people? And I think to build respect, you have to listen because often it's the things and it's not just listening, it's also watching, right? Because it's often the things that are unsaid or the things that are said, but sort of beneath the surface, right? The things that you kind of hear, but they're not really said outwardly or explicitly that are important. And they're the things that are telling. Uh, and I think that's, to me, that's the first step in building a culture of respect and belonging. I love that. And I know that after people hear your episode, they're going to want to find you. So where can people find you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, so they can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so Niti Nataraja. Um, yeah. So reach out, find me, connect. Follow her. Her content is absolutely <laughs> amazing. It, I mean, it's so, like I said, real authentic. It's you. And I think that having more leaders because it's not like your entry level, you have attained some great accolades and success in your career, and you're now openly sharing that with others. So today we've had some amazing thoughts. I think maybe even some free consult from uh, Nitsi here today. So <laughs> thank you so much for being our guest. And there you have it, folks, the truth according to Nitsi Nataraja. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.